Right, well, good morning, church. I uh, was a bit too keen to get up there before. But, uh, my name is Mark, so if you're new uh, or you're visiting here, uh, I'm glad to be with you this morning. Can I pray for us? Father, as we engage with the story in front of us, I pray that our wandering minds would be renewed, our feeble knees strengthened, and our hearts encouraged to further trust your son, Jesus. Amen. On the 4th of July, 1952, a determined woman named Florence Chadwick plunged into the ice-cold waters off of Catalina Island. She was determined to be the first woman to swim the distance between the California coast and Catalina Island. And let me tell you, that is a very long, long way to swim, especially in the open ocean. There's a photo of her now. And the next slide will show you, uh, give you an idea of that distance. I mean, she swam so far that the equivalent distance for us would be like swimming over 10 times consecutively around the Bustledon Jetty. And I can't even make it to the end of the GLC pool before I need a hand out of the water. Swimming is not my strong suit. However, Florence Chadwick was an experienced swimmer. And so neither the numbingly cold water nor the distance fazed her one bit. And yet, she was to face an unexpected adversary that day. One that proved to be her biggest challenge yet. And it was the fog. The fog. That day, the fog was so thick that she could hardly see the boats accompanying her. And she swam more than 15 hours before she asked to be taken out of the water. Her trainer encouraged her to keep swimming, keep pushing on because they were so close. But when she looked up, all she could see was darkness. And so she quit less than two kilometers from her end goal. Now, later in an interview, she said, I'm not excusing myself, but if I could have seen the shore, I might have made it. See, it wasn't the cold or the fear or the exhaustion that day that caused her downfall. It was the fog. And I'm sure that many of us have experienced situations in life where we feel like we're swimming around in thick clouds of confusion and discouragement, and all we can see is darkness. Now, you might be here today, and you might be in one of two camps. You might be uh, in a place of celebration or a place of devastation. Maybe you're here, and your child or your grandchild has gotten married, or your prodigal has returned home, or you finished that assignment, you passed that test. There is much to to celebrate. Or maybe you are here and you're in a place not of celebration but devastation. It may look like a loved one's tragic death. It may look like an ongoing battle with chronic pain. Maybe you're experiencing a particularly painful injury at the moment. Or are you in the midst of a grueling sin battle? If you are not currently in this season, you will be at some point. And in these times, 
of darkness and confusion. We can attempt to comfort ourselves with verses like this one found in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. And you're sitting there thinking, really? Are God's plans really good for my life? Oh, I'm sure you've had the experience of having a friend or a relative unthoughtfully and quite unhelpfully quote to you a verse like this in Romans 8, 28. We know that God causes everything to work for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. It's all a part of God's plan for your life, they say. And you're sitting there thinking, really? I mean, how can God bring about anything good out of this situation? In times of suffering and difficulty, we can often find ourselves searching for some evidence that God is still good to us. And one place in which we find very compelling evidence of God's goodness towards us is in the opening chapters of Exodus, which we're going to be exploring. And as we do, I hope that what will stand out to us is God's great reversal plan. And so I have three points for us to note. God's great reversal plan, part one, part two, and then a greater reality. So our first point is God's great reversal plan, part one. We have the privilege of engaging with uh, the opening chapters of the second installment in a much larger story. And that means we need to read these opening chapters in the book of Exodus in light of what has gone before, namely the book of Genesis. And not only because this is a good idea, but the author hints at this by opening up his narrative account with a family line, a family line who we've been following throughout Genesis. And if you remember, there is, there is one very crucial promise that God makes to someone in Genesis, a, a promise a covenant, a binding agreement he makes with a guy named Abraham. And in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, it says, The Lord said to Abram, which was his name before it got changed to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, And whoever curses you, I will curse. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So here we see God makes Abraham the promise of people, that his descendants would be a great nation, of land, his family would inherit a land, and of relationship, that Abraham and his descendants would have the exuberant blessing of being in a relationship with their creator God. And I'm not sure how you feel, but to me, that's a pretty sweet deal. So let's pick up the story. Let's see how things are going in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Okay, things are good. God seems to to be fulfilling his promise. 
He's clearly got this, right? Well, things are about to take a very dark turn. In verse 8 we read, But then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, The Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. And so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. And so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. And they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives very bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Things have taken a dark turn. Now, one thing to know about me is that uh, one of my pet peeves, you know, one of those things that really annoy me, alongside people who stand a bit too close and chew a bit too loudly, uh, one of the things that gets under my skin uh, is when people say the phrase, I couldn't care less. I couldn't care less. I had a mate who would, he would always say that. I couldn't care less. And it kind of made me feel like what I want or what I'm doing, it's totally irrelevant. And I wanted him to care. I wanted him to take interest. But none was given. And we have just read that. See, a new king comes to power in Egypt. And he truly couldn't care less about God or the people of God. This new king sees a potential problem down the line. That if the Israelites continue to multiply at this rate, they might become too powerful, too numerous, and ironically, ultimately leave the land. And so he comes up with a plan. The first of what we will call his twisted tactics are employed. The Pharaoh enslaves the people of God and he subjects them to forced labor and harsh treatment. God's people are now oppressed and enslaved. And verse 14 says their lives are very bitter. I mean, the new king's control measures weren't very controlled measures, were they? Rather than treating them like people, he treats them like an insect infestation that needs to be dealt with, or like a tree branch that needs to be cut back. They aren't people to him, but problems. And this here is the plot tension. Here is the dilemma that we must deal with. How can a good God allow his people to fall under the slavery of this tyrant? I mean, try and imagine how the Israelites would have been feeling here. Their thoughts running wild with concerns, with doubts. Has God abandoned us? Is God going to be good to us? Surely this isn't going to plan. Their cries echo the words of Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Has God abandoned them? Maybe God isn't a very capable leader. This isn't going to plan, is it? However, if we take a moment now, and we notice in verse 12, we look closely at the text, 
we can see that God's great reversal plan has actually already begun. In verse 12, the author tells us, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied. See, the more Pharaoh sought to slow down the multiplication of the Israelites, the more they multiplied. The more their number increased. God reverses the plan of Pharaoh. And so this new king, he decides to employ another twisted tactic. And this covers verses 15 to 21 of the text. This new king, he tells these Hebrew midwives to kill any newborn boys. But God works through these courageous women who refuse to take the life of infant boys. And the result? God blesses them. And their number increases yet again. The very people commanded by Pharaoh to kill feared God and instead conspired to save. See, twisted tactic number two has failed and God's great reversal plan is picking up steam. Twisted tactic number three. This is perhaps the worst of all. The most sinister of all. Verse 22. Please read with me. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. But let every girl live. I mean, this is so twisted. This is so messed up. But God's great reversal plan is not over. We we first saw that the more the people of God were oppressed and enslaved, the more their numbers increased. And then we saw that the very people commanded by Pharaoh to kill, fear God and conspire to save, which leads to further multiplication. And now we're going to see that this final tactic to bring death through the Nile will be exactly what God uses to bring life from the Nile. In chapter 2, 1 to 3, a, a boy is born and he's hidden as best he could for about three months. But as many parents can probably uh, agree, he made far too much noise, far too often, and time was up. And so the boy's mother places him in a basket and she sends him off down the river. She places him into the very death trap designed to kill him. In verse 5 of chapter 2, we read this. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slaves to get it. She opened it and she saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse this baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby, nurse him for me, and I'm going to pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Pharaoh's Twisted tactics have failed yet again. 
God has intervened and worked on his great reversal plan. This time, the command to kill every Hebrew boy through being thrown in the Nile has been flipped on its head when a boy is placed into the Nile, only to be found by Pharaoh's own daughter, who then protects and provides him with everything he could ever need at guess whose expense? Pharaoh's own expense. See, Pharaoh is actually unknowingly ensuring the safety of Israel's future deliverer. I mean, can you see the irony of this? Pharaoh's twisted tactics have been twisted back on him. Now, coming up on the screen, uh, it's a picture of someone who I think I maybe look a little bit like. Um, And you can tell me afterward, (laughs) hey, hey, you can tell me afterward if you think I'm right about this, or clearly what will more likely happen is you can tell me how definitely wrong I am about this comparison. Who is that? Who is that? (laughs) Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, yeah, Mark Collier. No, Tom Cruise. And he is famous for playing the character Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible movies. And they are great movies if you have seen them. Here in our passage, God is making Mission Impossible possible. And he's making it look easy. The reversing of the twisted tactics of Pharaoh, I believe, is what the author is trying to get us to notice here. And so in chapter 2, Moses, he grows up. He tries his hand at being a rescuer and fails epically. He even kills the guy. And so he has to run away. He has to settle in some faraway town. And so maybe the momentum has stopped. Maybe things aren't going to work out again. But verse 23 of chapter 2 gives us hope again. It's coming up on the screen. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery. They cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God is concerned for his people. He really does hear their cry. When Jesus tells us through the Apostle Peter to cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you, he really does mean that. He really does care. He really is listening. And for us who know the rest of this story, we know that this is actually the tipping point where God will now work in a momentous way to raise up Israel's deliverer and free them from slavery. He's going to act on that promise, that covenant, that binding agreement which he made so long ago to Abraham. And he's going to lead them through Moses to the land that he promised. So our second point, God's great reversal plan, part two. This story in Exodus is a picture pointing us forward to Jesus, 
The Israelites trapped and enslaved is a picture of us being trapped and enslaved under sin. And the Israelites' eventual rescue out of Egypt is a picture of our freedom available to us in Jesus Christ. See, God will once again go head to head against the twisted tactics of the enemy. And this time, Jesus will come and he will rescue a people from a much worse enemy than Pharaoh. And Jesus is going to do it through doing the unthinkable. This time, Jesus allows himself to be placed into the hands of the enemy. See, our great enemy, the devil, he employed his twisted tactics of getting one of Jesus' closest mates, one of his closest followers, to betray and backstab him, which leads to his capture and his death. However, it is through the twisted tactic of the enemy that Jesus actually rescues us and redeems us by dying for us. The very twisted tactic of the enemy nailing Jesus to a cross has become for us the nail in death's coffin. This is exactly what the New Testament, Testament writer Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 2. He says that God has cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness. It stood against us and it condemned us. And he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them by triumphing over them by the cross. See, God on the cross, he used the worst evil ever committed in human history, the death of the sinless Son of God. And rather than making a last-minute escape, Jesus twists the twisted tactics of the enemy back on him by doing nothing. By allowing those wicked and bloodthirsty soldiers to take his last breath. But it was through the cross that God's great reversal plan came to its culmination because it achieved for us our salvation. What is the evidence of God's goodness to us in the midst of severe trials? Well, the evidence is not found in our lives. It's found in Jesus' life. He died for our sins. He died for our shame. And he did it outside the walls of Jerusalem on a cross. There it pleased the heart of God to crush the righteous one. But three days later, he rose. He rose in resurrection power and his Rising from the dead means ours is certain. And that is the message of grace available to every one of us here today. It is in Jesus' story that we find compelling evidence of God's goodness towards us. So we've seen played out in the story of Exodus. God frustrating the twisted tactics of Pharaoh by protecting Israel's future deliverer. And we've also seen how this same story is played out in Jesus' life. We see that Jesus rescues and he redeems us by his death and his resurrection. 
And so confidently can we say that our God is the great reverser of even the worst situations in our lives. And yet, if we're honest, there are still times where this is hard to believe, isn't it? So often we can find ourselves in life situations where our experience is like Florence Chadwick's, where dark and thick clouds of confusion and discouragement surround us. And in these moments, there will be a temptation to quit, to give up, to get out of the water. But in these moments, we are called to trust the truth and not the experience. We are called to trust the truth, not the experience. See, in in times of suffering and trials and grief and pain and shame, we will be called to trust that indeed God does say He causes everything to work for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose for them. If I am called to trust the truth and not the experience, that means what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to look at my current circumstances to know whether God has been good to me or not. Because the reality is we will suffer in this life. 1 Peter 4 verse 12 tells us, Dear friends, do not be surprised that the fiery ordeal has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. See, we, have a, we, we do not have a promise from God that our current trials and situations are going to be reversed. They're going to be solved in this life. We don't have that promise. But that's why we have a promise of a greater reality. And this is our final point. A greater reality. So where is our hope? Well, our hope isn't in the here and now. Our hope is in what awaits us. Right now, we have a promise. A promise that we are called to trust in the midst of extraordinarily difficult situations. And it's the promise of what awaits us. So what is it that awaits us? Well, it's a wonderful place. As David writes in Psalm 16, You make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's the promise of presence. That our God is not only with us right now, but one day we will be with him and with his people in paradise. And this will be true of you and me if we are found in his son, Jesus. Now, Adam Ramsey, uh, in his brilliant book called Truth on Fire, he invites us to participate in a refreshing thought experiment. And I'm going to invite us to join him now. If it helps you, feel free to close your eyes and engage your imagination. And if it helps you, uh, it will come up on the screen. And feel free to read along as well. Think with me about a definite moment in your distant future. Think with me about your 10 billionth anniversary in glory. There you are standing with Jesus, looking squarely into his eyes, face to face. In that moment, you will experience an affection from him 
And they glory in him so dazzling that as you try to recall the worst moments of your short and earthly existence or the most difficult situation you face in his service, you will say, I don't know how to compare the two. You will be standing in the presence of your risen king who will wipe every tear from your eyes. So take heart, weary one. For one day, in eternal joy, we are going to look back at these present trials as no more than a bad dream you had as a five-year-old. End quote. We have explored parts one and two of God's great reversal plan as seen in the story of Exodus. We see this in the story of Moses and then in Jesus. And we have seen that we can have confidence that God is good to us. Because we find in the story of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, a firm foundation to which we can tether our hope. Because he died, we will not. Because he rose, we will one day rise. That is the greater reality. That we will be with him in glory And so when we have these moments where we put our hands on our heads and we go, why God? Or how could this be used for my good? Let's remember that God is the great reverser of even the worst situations in life. Now, if you are someone here today and maybe you're in a relatively good spot, things are going well, then can I please challenge you and can I encourage you To find someone who you can come alongside and you can encourage. You can spur them on. Someone who you can tell in the battle, in the struggle, that the shore is so close. Just keep swimming. A bit like Dory in Finding Nemo. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. I mean, who can you encourage the same way the New Testament author uh, Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 4? It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and our momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen. For what is seen is temporary. But what is unseen, now that's eternal let's push through the fog by clinging to jesus and the certainty of his promises towards us and confidently in light of all this can we sing that it is well with my soul amen gathering team please come up